Ramsey family. Let's get together once again in the Word. Praise God for the opportunity to, to gather via video right now. And uh, we'll continue right along with our study of this Bible. Tonight we'll be taking up the Old Testament book of Joshua. So if you've got your Bibles there with you, I invite you to be turning to the book of Joshua. As you have a note there, if not, that's available online. Pull those off and follow along, or you can just listen along, however you like to do it. But as we get started, as always, let me open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for a chance to open your word. Lord, in days like these, we are reminded of the necessity of your word in our lives. Lord, there's so many things that are unclear, so many things that are uncertain. Fear and anxiety swirling around us, Lord, we need to be tied closely to the truth of your word. Lord, as we open the book of Joshua now, see that you are the divine warrior king who fights for your people. You remind us that what was true of Israel is true for us. You are our divine warrior king who fights for us, who protects us, who leads us to dwell securely under your leadership. So Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would give us insight into your word. We might use it in our lives in a mighty and wonderful way. God, I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So, again, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn it to the book of Joshua. It's just some introductory comments. Joshua, the, the story of Joshua happens somewhere between 1406 and 1375 B.C. The dates are approximate. If you are an Old Testament uh, scholar or you get into the details, you know there's some, there's some debate over a particular date, but that's a good approximate date. Uh, the author of the most of it is probably Joshua, although it doesn't say. Some think that some parts after he died or some of his final words may have been recorded by others. Most likely, Joshua is the primary author. The theme and the purpose of the book is this, that the book of Joshua recounts part two of God's grandest work in the Old Testament period. In part one, under the leadership of Moses, the Lord redeemed his people out of bondage in Egypt, brought them to Sinai, and formalized his covenant with them. That's part one of, of the great redemptive work in the Old Testament. God saved people out of Israel, brought them to Sinai, made a covenant with them. Now in part two, under the leadership of Joshua, the Lord is, is shown to us as this divine warrior king who brings his people into the land of promise and gives them rest. Now he's the divine warrior king because he fights for his people, and we'll see that all throughout the book. And if you've read the book, then you, you know it's a story of conquest. But God gives his people rest in the promised land. So the outline of the book, you can see there on your notes, is kind of broken down. The first half of the book is about Israel taking uh, taking possession of the land. The, the last half of the book is about Israel living in the land. Uh, some key words to note as we study this book, and that's just something good to do when you are studying the Bible, is to pay attention to words that occur over and over and over seem to be important words that have meaning. Uh, and then in Joshua, four words tend to come to the surface. Uh, number one is 
the name Joshua itself. In the book of Joshua, in these 24 chapters, his name occurs 168 times. The word land, as you see there on your notes, I have that capitalized, the plural noun, I mean, a singular noun, proper noun. It occurs 102 times. That's a major theme in the book of Joshua, the promised land. The word inheritance occurs 50 times. And the word boundary or border or territory occurs 84 times. And we'll see that God intended to place the people in the land. He didn't just say, hey, here it is, have at it. He said, no, here's how you're going to live and where you're going to live. And so God is intentional with how he leads the people to the land. Truly, the book of Joshua is consumed with the place where Yahweh rules over his people. That's what one pastor said. That it's consumed with the place, that is the promised land, where God rules over his people. Now, if you remember our study from last week in Deuteronomy, we talked about the theme, God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what we're seeing here in the book of Joshua. The people of God in the place of God rule of God. Something else that we need to note about Joshua is we're we're changing places in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is broken up into a number of different groupings. The books are grouped differently. We just concluded our study of the first five books of the Bible, what you call the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, all of those, those titles refer to the first five books of the Old Testament. Moving into what is called now the historical books. See, our Old Testament, our English Old Testament, is arranged not chronologically. Our Old Testament is arranged by theme. It's arranged thematically. And so we're moving into a new section of the Old Testament called the historical books. And this is a group of books spanning approximately 1,000 years of Israel's history. And it takes us from the 14th century to the 5th century, approximately. That is, from the time of Joshua leading the people into the land of Canaan to the end of the Old Testament, to the end of Second Chronicles. Now, if you know anything about how the Bible is put together, there's a 400-ish year uh, period between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, called the 400 years of silence. We'll talk more about that as we get closer in our study. But Joshua through Second Chronicles really makes up the rest of the history of Israel that's covered in the Old Testament. Uh, the other books that we'll find are the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, the Minor Prophets. All of those are occurring during the years that the historical books cover. The historical books are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those make up the twelve books of history. Like I said, this group covers all the history from Moses to the end of the Old Testament. So let's take a look now at Joshua. The book of Joshua is a change in the storyline of the Bible. People are now on the move into the promised land, taking the land by the help of Yahweh. So when Deuteronomy closes, if you remember, they're on the plains of Moab, they're overlooking the promised land. And now, under the leadership,
leadership of Joshua, they're going to go in and conquer the promised land. There are peoples living there, there are nations established in the land, and God is going to lead them to take possession of the land. Part of that's going to come from war. God is going to lead them in that. This is the second phase of God's promise to Abraham. It's now coming to pass. The first phase of God's promise was that his people would sojourn in a land that was not their own and that God would bring them out. And the second phase is that God would bring them into the land of promise. They're now going to gain the promised land. So we need to say this is not a return to paradise. We see Adam and Eve, the Bible opens with them in paradise. When God calls Abram, he calls him to sojourn or to wander, to live. Abraham lives in the land of Canaan. That's where his life occurs. And now the people are coming back to the land of Canaan. This is not an entry back to paradise. This is not a return to paradise. But it serves to function. It serves to function and to, to create this anticipation within us of God's people returning to paradise. Now, they're not actually going back to paradise, because as we'll see, sin exists, and sin abounds, wickedness will abound, but it's meant to create in us an anticipation that God will ultimately return His people to paradise. The book leads us to understand that Israel's return to the promised land is a small taste of what's to come. But we read about the divisions of the land, once they've conquered it, it's divided up among the tribes. It's, it's they're divided up with great detail, with great care. One Bible teacher says the descriptions are so particular that we can no longer certify them in scientific order. And what do you mean, Dip? Some of those things were, were geographical and, and the land has changed over the years, so it's, it's, it's hard to even say with, with precision where exactly those borderlines went. Now, we can say most of our Bibles have maps that designate the general area. They're so precise. God told them so precise that it's hard to still certify the precise order. The boundaries and divisions of the land are laid out very clearly for Israel, and there is not one unused portion left. You see, God intended for them to go in and inhabit the whole of the promised land. Well, this highlights the major theme of the book of Joshua. We're going to ask, what, what's the purpose, what's the theme, what's the main idea of the book of Joshua? Joshua himself tells us in chapter 21. He says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it, and they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. There is the heartbeat. There is the lifeblood of the book of Joshua. That all the promises that God had made to the people of Israel about entering and gaining and living in the land had come to pass. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Well, the book closes with a number of warnings that Joshua gives to the people. In chapter 23, just before his death, we read these words. Joshua says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, meaning that he's about to die. 
you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all of the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. And so Joshua is, is very clear with the people. He's led the people that, that, that they've seen God's goodness over the generations, and he is very clear to remind them, this is a gift of God's grace. And as long as you live under God's grace, things will go well. But if you don't, things will not go well. You will fall into the punishment of God. You will fall under the, the righteous anger of God. It's very similar to, to what Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy 30 when he said, if you, if you recall, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 20, Moses says, don't say, where is God's word as if someone has to bring it to you? Remember, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, so that you can do it. He said that if you do God's word, that is, if you are obedient to God's word, things will go well. But if you don't, things will not go well. You will be punished. And so he says, choose life. And it might go well with you. And so here, we find Moses' successor, his disciple, in a way. The new leader of Israel, saying the same thing before he dies. Don't spurn the grace of God. Choose obedience. Choose life so that it might go well. Well, the word rest suggests something. We see in the, the book of Joshua, the word rest occurs many times. It's one of those important words. And the word rest suggests that the people would enjoy the benefits of Yahweh's blessings in the land. It's one of those reasons why Joshua said, be careful to obey so that you might rest, that you might find and experience all of God's blessing. You see, Yahweh's rest would be delightful and refreshing. Being in the promised land would be a place where Israel could enjoy the blessings of Yahweh's grace and peace and His reign over them. As they were brought into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey is what the Scripture tells us. They would be blessed. They would rest from all their labors. They would not have to fight in war any longer. They would, they would flourish because they had a, uh, a divine warrior king who cared for them and who loved them and who fought for them, who protected them, who cultivated them. They would be God's people in God's place under God's rule. We see that in a number of places throughout the book. You can see it listed there on your notes. We see the presence and rule of Yahweh with His people are represented in this book by the Ark of the Covenant, which goes before Israel when they move. It's to dwell in their midst when they're uh, camped. And the presence of the Lord with the people is further represented by the construction of a sanctuary at Shiloh. So once they've come into the land, they build a sanctuary, they build a, a tabernacle, a permanent place of worship in a place called Shiloh. We see this in chapter 18. 
you look at a map of Israel, Shiloh is almost in the very middle of the land, which if you recall back to Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the tabernacle was to be the very center of the camp because Yahweh was to be the very center of the lives of his people. And so a sanctuary is constructed at Shiloh. But a third way the presence of God is highlighted is in the fact that the tribe of Levi was not given a portion of land. So the other 11 tribes were given portions of land all throughout the promised land. But Levi was not given any land. They were not given a, 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 a distinct portion. The tribe of Levi was dispersed into all the other tribes. They were sent to live in all the cities of the promised land because, if you remember our study, they are to be the ministers of God among the people of God. They are to be the teachers of the law among the people of God. They are to serve in the, in the tabernacle so that worship can go on. And so one of the ways that God says, I'm dwelling with you, you are still able to worship me. I'm still, you're still able to come to me and find forgiveness is that he dispersed his priests among the people. Well, as the book closes, we're left with the tenth question. Will the people obey? Joshua says, if you obey, things will go well. If you disobey, things will go poorly. And so we are left with the tension. Will they obey? Will they obey? While we see a number of things happening in Joshua, which is we see the conquest of Canaan, we see a number of battles, we see the land being divided, we see the tribes dispersing into the land, we see Joshua's final word and his speech before he dies. We see all of this in the book of Joshua, but in the time we have, I want to draw attention to two things. I want us to notice Yahweh's sovereign control, but also his grace. We've seen that in, 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 in basically every book we've studied so far, that God is in total control of everything, and that God is infinitely gracious. I want us to see that here. But the second thing I want us to see is the call of Israel to obey. The call of Israel to obey. But the first thing I want us to see is that Yahweh is sovereign and gracious. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how did Israel receive the promised land? How is it that this, this small group of people who just, just a few decades before were slaves in Egypt, now they are the choicest of people on the earth, that God has, has entrusted himself to them in, in a way that he hasn't entrusted himself to anybody else in the world, that he has gifted them with riches and with his presence. And now they're going in to take what might be the choicest land in the world, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is that is cultivated and drinks from the heavens, if you remember, is what the Scripture said. That God takes care of this land. How is it that Israel has received this land? Well, it's not because they were upright citizens. We know that. We just, we just read the books of Moses, and we know Israel wasn't this special holy people in a way that other peoples of the earth were in many ways, they were just like the rest of the people of the world. But one of the things Joshua tells us is that, that, that Israel's receiving of the land was solely due to God's sovereignty and God's grace. If God wasn't in control, then they could not have conquered it. If God wasn't gracious, they would not have received it. God had promised that he would never revoke the promise he made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. And we've said that if God wasn't sovereign, that hundreds of years before, he couldn't have told Abraham, I'm going to give your people this land. If 
he wasn't actually able to do that, then he couldn't have said that. But because he is sovereign, he did make the promise. And because he is sovereign, the promise has been fulfilled. But it's also a gift of his grace. As I said, the people didn't deserve it. The people have given God numerous reasons why he shouldn't give it to them. And yet he gives it to them because he is gracious. We see this in a few ways. The first one is that the land was possessed by nations stronger and more well-established than Israel. Stronger than Israel and more well-established than Israel. Because don't forget, at this point, Israel as a nation, as a a nation with a fighting force, is only about 40 years old. They've come out of Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness, so now they're only about 40 to 45 years old. There are nations that have existed far longer and are more well-established, and their militaries are more well-established. So the question is, how will Israel conquer these people? How will Israel drive these more established nations out of the land? Well, we read in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4, From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, for the going down of the sun shall be your territory. is your land. There are other people living here. There are people stronger than you living here. There are fortified cities here. But it's yours. It's yours. And if God wasn't sovereign, if God had no intention of giving them that land and driving those people out, he would have never said this. Yet God tells them that the land is theirs. Yahweh pledges to defeat their enemies for them in a number of ways. We see in chapter 1, verse 2, Yahweh says to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving to you. So there again, Yahweh doesn't tell the people, go and take the land, and if you get it, great. He says, I am going to give you this land. So he pledged to defeat their enemies for them. He does this all throughout the book of Joshua. One example we have of of God working sovereignly in the hearts of these pagan people, it comes right in chapter 2 with Rahab. Rahab lives in Jericho. She's a a prostitute there. And when the spies come to to, to take, uh, to, to tell the people what is going on, to take stock of the land, to develop a plan, Rahab hides the spies from the people of Jericho so that they aren't found and put to death. And as they're talking to Rahab, she says, look, God's already been at work in the city. We've heard. We've heard how God brought you out of Egypt. We've heard how God parted the Red Sea. We've heard all of the wonderful things God has done for you, the Israelites, and we are terrified. It says their hearts see this in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. But specifically, verse 11, Rahab says, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. But the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens, above and on the earth, beneath. And so not only was God working in the hearts of these pagan people, causing them to fear Israel, God is actually working salvation in the life of Rahab. Because not only does she recognize, hey, there is a God with them, he is powerful, and we ought to be scared. She says, I see that God is God of heaven and God of earth. 
see is that God ultimately spared Israel from having a famine. But but this was part of the way that God was sovereignly working to give Israel the land. We see that Israel's battles testify to the Lord's sovereignty. The, the story of Joshua presents Yahweh, as I said, as this divine warrior king. That as the warrior king, he ensures that Israel will triumph over her we, we read in chapter 6 what, what might be one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the, the story of Jericho and Israel's battle there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Joshua 6. But in verse 3, God says to Joshua, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before it. Well, we need to say that the battle plan for the defeat of Jericho seems a bit ridiculous at first. If you were to sit down with military commanders and say, the way we're going to take this fortified city, now if you don't know anything about Jericho, Jericho was a, was a, a, a walled-off city, so they had military defenses, a thick wall guarding the city. If, if you remember the story of Rahab and the spies, and they uh, let down through the wall, so people actually live inside of that wall. It's a thick defense. We told these military strategists that we, our goal, the way that we were going to get into the city, the way we were going to take the city, is that we were going to walk around it, blow some trumpets, and get in. Our natural mind would tell us, well, you can do that, but that would do nothing. Because these are stone, thick stone walls, and that's just yelling and noise. city once for six days, and on the seventh day, you shall walk around seven times, blow your trumpets, yell, and the walls will come down. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. If we were to read through chapter six, that's exactly what happened. The people obey, they do as God says, trumpets are, are, are blown, the people yell, the walls come down. And the point is that this is no ordinary battle. This is a holy war sanctioned by Yahweh himself. It's designed to show God's power alone. You see, the people were never going to march in there and take that city by themselves. While they had a fighting force of 600,000 men, if you remember that from the book of Numbers, they weren't going to, to storm a well-fortified city and take it on their own. And God wanted to make sure they knew, you're not doing this in your own power. I am the one fighting for you. So do it this way. Walk around that city. Can you imagine seeing a fighting force of 600,000 people walking around, getting ready to fight? I'm sure that in and of itself was a terrifying sight. But imagine being inside of Jericho. Your heart is already melting because you've heard of all that God has done. And then you hear this loud shout from outside of the walls, and then the walls start to crack and crumble and fall down. Only God can do that. And so the victory was one of sovereign power. God 
to make his power known. When we see the lordship of Yahweh reaffirmed in the battles to win the southern land, people were coming up from the south, so they had to work their way north. And in the southern lands, uh, Yahweh again displays his sovereignty and how the people triumph. A simple treaty is made with Gibeon. We don't have time to, to really get into all uh, the, the, the nitty-gritty of the book, but a simple treaty is made with Gibeon, and Israel must come to their come to their aid in the treaty. And so in chapter 10, verse 8, they're called upon to come and fight for Gibeon. And Joshua is lamenting this. He's worried about it. And in chapter 10, verse 8, we read, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hand, and not a man of them shall stand before you. So the Lord knew that Joshua was, was fearful. The Lord reminded Joshua, um, it's not about your strength, Joshua, it's about my strength. So don't fear, because I'm going to give them to you. So we read about the battle with the Amorites. And the some of the things that chapter 10 brings to uh, the service or, or notes about how God fights for the people of Israel. It says that he throws the Amorites into confusion. It says that he throws down hail upon the Amorites and that, that hail killed more soldiers than Israel did with the sword. It says that God makes the sun and the moon stand still. He prolonged the day so that Israel could triumph over the Amorites. In chapter 10, verse 19, we read that the Lord gave the enemies into the hand of Israel. And so the writer summarizes in chapter 10, verse 42, when he says, And Joshua captured all the kings of their land all at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Now, there was a war, there was a battle, all of that's recorded in there. But the reason why Israel won was because God fought for them. But we also see the lordship of Yahweh is affirmed in Israel's battle for the northern kingdom, the northern land. In chapter 11, the kings of the north have heard about what's going on in the south, about Israel's conquering, and they decide, well, if we get together, if we amass our forces together, perhaps we can triumph over Israel. But in chapter 11, verse 6, God once again reassures Joshua that's not going to happen. God is fighting for them. And so while the details of the battle are somewhat glossed over, there's not a whole lot of detail there, the point is that Israel's victory is God's sovereign power exercised for them. But Israel triumphs because of God. In chapter 11, verse 20, we read, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against come against Israel in battle. When he says their hearts, he's talking about those five kings from the north. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they would come against Israel in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So there's a number of things going on here, and I just want to touch on them briefly. Uh, we, we read in Exodus number of places in Exodus where God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Do you remember that? God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would act in a certain way. But Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. 
says that a number of times in Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so what we saw in Exodus was that Pharaoh was guilty. He was morally guilty of wronging the, the people of God. And yet God was at the same time acting to harden his heart so that he would act in those ways. And the Bible doesn't relieve that tension for us. It just said this thing. And here again, we have that same type of language and that same type of concept that God is hardening the hearts of these kings so that they will come against Israel. And, and they thought that they were coming against Israel to save themselves. If we fight against Israel, we'll preserve our way of life. And yet in doing that, in making the plans to fight against Israel, they were, they were actually taking themselves to be destroyed. They were destroying their way of life because God had purposed it. And that God is sovereign. And so God worked in their hearts to fight against Israel, and God fought with Israel to conquer these pagan people. Well, the last thing I want to see about God's sovereignty is that Joshua's final speech displays God's sovereign control, but also God's grace. In chapter 24, Joshua is reminding the people of where they've come from. He reminds them that they come from an idolatrous past, even all the way back to Abraham. It says in chapter 24, verse 2, that long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. They served other gods. So he was reminding them, um, you're only a people because God has made you a people. You're only different and distinct from the rest of the peoples of the earth because God has made you different and distinct. Don't forget where you came from. He reminds, Joshua reminds the people that it's Yahweh alone who called Abraham and gifted him with the son of promise. If you recall, Abraham and Sarah were 190, or Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90 when they had their son Isaac. And it was once again God showing his sovereign control to, to cause a woman whose womb was dead to come alive and bear a child well past childbearing years. That's God's sovereign control, but it's also a gift of his grace that he would give to this barren couple a child and a child that would turn into a nation, a nation of promise. And Joshua said, don't forget that that's all Yahweh's grace. But in chapter in 24, verses 4 through 13, Joshua gives them what's called a biblical theology. He, he takes them through the story. He says, don't remember how, don't, don't forget, I'm sorry, don't forget how God called and blessed Abram, and that God called and blessed Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then, and, and then raised up Moses to lead us out of the Exodus and through the wilderness, that God has raised up leaders to lead you into the promised land, that God has settled you here and blessed you here and dwells with you here. He says, don't forget all of that. So, so great was God's goodness to Israel in taking the land. So great was his goodness to them that he had given them a land that was already cultivated, where cities were already built. They enjoyed vineyards and olive orchards that they had not planted, and they moved into and inhabited cities that they had not built. They were living in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so one thing we need to understand about Joshua is that God is the major character of the book. 
He's the giver of the land uh, in fulfillment of his promises. He is the one to whom allegiance and obedience are owed. He fought for his people and gave them rest in the land. This is a book about God. That can be said for any book of the Bible, but right now we're looking at this one. And this is a book about God. But the second thing we see in the book is that Israel is called to obey. The book is about the covenant, about God's covenant promises to his people, that it's rooted in all that God has promised to Israel. Yahweh's promised that he would be the people's protector, he would be the people's king, he would win victories for them as their divine warrior. And in turn, the people are called upon to give God faithful obedience. They're called upon to respond to him in the right way. We see this in the raising up of Joshua as the new leader of Israel. Israel is called upon to obey and follow Joshua just as they did Moses. Anyone who rejected Joshua's leadership was rejecting Yahweh. Tells us that in chapter 1. Joshua commands the people. He strikes down enemies. He speaks the word of the Lord. Joshua allots the land for the tribes to live in. And in this way, Joshua is acting as a king over Israel. He's not the king. The king's not been established yet, but he's acting as a king. And he's given us a foreshadowing of what's to come, which is the establishment of the king of Israel. We'll see that for some time. But he's given us a foreshadowing. But to make sure that Joshua understands that he is not the king, he is not sufficient in himself, God humbles him. God has to, to humble him. You see, Joshua's leadership over Israel is rooted in his own worship of God. Victory for the nation depends on God's work, on God's leadership, not upon Joshua. And so, Joshua is given this picture of this of this divine warrior that comes to him. He asks him, who are you? Are you a friend or are you a foe? And the angel says, well, I'm the, I'm the commander of God's army. And the point is this, that Joshua be reminded that all of his leadership is nothing if not for God. All of his leadership, all of his skill, all of his strength is nothing apart from God's blessing him. Joshua was called to humble obedience in his leadership. He has to be strong and courageous because Yahweh is with him, which is really the call to the whole nation. The whole nation is to be humble before God, yet strong and courageous because God is with them. We read about the passing through of the Jordan River, that the ark is brought into the river and the river is parted. It says that the river was walled up on one end and ceased to flow on the other. And the people crossed the dry riverbed into the promised land. We're meant to remember the parting of the Red Sea where Israel walked through. And the purpose of this, the purpose of parting the Jordan River, was to show the people that his mighty works were not at an end, that his covenant promises were still theirs to have, that he was still with them. And, in, and, and because of that, because all of his power was still with them, they were to obey. They were to respond rightly. One of the ways we see that is they, they have to enter the promised land with the sign of the covenant. In chapter 5, we read that although God had given circumcision to Moses and the wilderness generation, they had failed to pass along the sign of the covenant. 
And so God tells Joshua in chapter 5, you can't go into the nation and circumcise. They made flint rock, flint knives for themselves, and they circumcised the whole nation. And then also before they go into the nation, they celebrate the Passover meal, which is a fitting reminder that the God who freed them from Egypt was leading them into the promised land. The God that had saved them from bondage is the same God who is leading them to life. We see that the people must obey all of God's battle instructions. That God is going to give them very particular ways to go about conquering the land, and they have to follow all of those instructions or punishment will follow. And Pastor notes that Joshua is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to come against. I tend to agree with that. Part of that is because of uh, the story of Achan, chapter 7. That during one of the, the conquests, God said, don't take anything, destroy everything, including the people from young to old and all the possessions, gold, silver, riches, destroy all of it. Yet Achan takes several things for himself. He takes some, some gold and some stones and some fabric and some robes and hides them in his tent so that he buries them in the ground of his tent. And when the people go to fight against the AI, they are defeated. They're defeated. And Joshua says, well, God, why, why would you bring us here just to, just to, to see us defeated? And God says, you don't understand there's sin in the camp. Somebody, somebody has violated my law. And so because of Achan's sin, the, the nation is defeated. Thirty-some people are killed in battle. And in this very intimidating story, Joshua brings the tribes one by one, and he narrows it down to where he comes to Achan and says, what have you done, my son? Achan confesses, and then because God demands obedience, Achan and all of his family are put to death. And it's just this, this, this crystallizing picture that God cares about his holiness. You remember Leviticus, why is Leviticus so deeply? Because God cares about his holiness. God cares about how he's worshipped. And here, with the death of Achan, we see that God cares about how he's obeyed. We see that the people are called upon to obey or face curse. We said a little a few moments ago that as the book closes, Joshua reminds the people of being faithful to the covenant. That devotion to the covenant is expressed through both affections for God, but also action. They must be strong and courageous. They must keep what is written in the law of Moses. They must cling to the Lord. They must love God. They must resist assimilation with the other pagan nations. And in chapter 24, just before his death, Joshua leads the people in a covenant renewal at a place called Shechem. And he reminds them that God's grace and salvation come before obedience, that we're not obeying our way into God's grace, but we obey because God is gracious. And we see that the generation of Joshua does, in fact, continue to serve the Lord. That they, they do conquer the land because they're obedient. That they do settle into this land of promise because they are obedient. That things go well for them because they are obedient. And so Israel, what we see from Joshua, Israel, like Adam, back in the garden, now live in the land under God's care. That is God's people in God's place, under God's rule. That's where they were. 
but they entered the land only because they were obedient to their king. They would remain in the land only if they continued to trust him. So here's some final thoughts, closing thoughts about our study of Joshua. First, we need to understand the book is about choices. It's about choices. Obey or disobey. First half of the book is about Joshua leading the people through the choice that their parents failed to make, which was the conquest of the promised land. And so through the book, we see that the people choose. They choose to conquer the land and destroy their enemies. They choose to divide the land of tribe by tribe. They choose to vow to fear and obey God. But we also need to ask the question, why does that happen? Why do the people choose? Because we saw their parents, they chose not to. But why do the people choose to do all of these things? Well, they choose because God works for His people. In the same way that we see Israel choosing to obey God here, we see God choosing to bless Israel. God chooses to fight for the people and give them the land. So why is it that the people chose to fight and take possession of the land? It was because God chose to fight for them. We see God choosing to lead the people in the dividing of the land. Why is it that the people chose to divide the land and peacefully move into and inhabit their places? It's because God chose to lead them in that way. We see that God chose to keep His promise and to persevere with His people. Why is it that the people chose to obey God? Because God persevered with them. So on one level, the people chose to obey God and conquer the land that He had promised them. But on another, higher level, God fought for them and gave them the land. These two things are happening at the same time, that the people are choosing because God is working. And God is working, therefore the people are choosing. Well, Joshua sums up the purpose of the book in chapter 4, saying, So that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Why does God do the things He does? So that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. In other words, God is acting on behalf of His people for the glory of His name. We see this clearly in the way that God uses Joshua to lead his people. When Moses meets Joshua, his name is Hosea, which means salvation. And in Numbers 13, we read that Moses changes his name to Yeshua, or Joshua, which means the Lord gives salvation. And some 1,400 years later, a baby would be born in a stable, and he laid in a manger. He would be given the name Jesus, which is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name, Yeshua. You see, God indeed acts to save His people. And He would do so most clearly in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, whose mission is proclaimed in His name. In the same way that Joshua led the people into the promised land, conquering their enemies, giving them a place, giving them rest, settling them in a land cared for by God, so too in a far greater way does Jesus Christ lead us into the land of promise and give us rest 
under the care of God. Recognizing this, through the inside of the Holy Spirit, Matthew would open his gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, with this phrase. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. so purposeful and so rich and so full. Lord, thank you for the blessings that you bestowed upon Israel. Thank you for leading them into the land. Thank you for settling them there. Thank you for giving them rest. Thank you for putting them in a place flowing with milk and honey, a place that drinks its water from the heavens, a place where you dwell. Lord, we know that Israel did not maintain their place there. We know that they did not maintain their obedience because they couldn't. The law would not work because our hearts are defective. And so, God, we see in your leading them and settling them in that land, we see just a small picture of how you would ultimately save your people through your son, Jesus Christ. We can't do it. The people of Israel couldn't do it. It didn't matter how good Moses was or how good Joshua was. Even they were sinners. We can't do it. We need you. We see through the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have done it all. That through him you lead us in the exodus out of sin. That you lead us through the wilderness of this life into the promised land of heaven where you will settle us and give us rest and settle us in a land flowing with divine milk and honey, a land that drinks its waters from the heaven, a land where you dwell with your people, where there is no mourning, no crying, no sickness anymore. Lord, teach us to long for that day. We love you. We pray all of this in your name.